0: we're in hebrews chapter nine if you guys will open up your bible there hebrews chapter nine we're continuing to study through the book of hebrews we've been going verse by verse chapter by chapter and every week and here we are in chapter nine as we've been going through these last couple of chapters of the book of hebrew we've continued to read about the superiority of jesus the book of hebrews is a book of betters there's an argument that's being made in this letter that was written to the early church specifically jewish believers um, uh, Hebrew men and women who had who had come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they abandoned Judaism, if you will, the old ways for this new way, as in regards to our relationship with the Son of God, to have fellowship with God, and um, th- there was a leaving behind of the old because there was a new. But yet, many Hebrew people remained in the old; they didn't come to faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, we know as in, the, the nation as a whole rejected. The messiah as a whole not all of them but as a whole they rejected the messiah Uh, the tabernacle the temple was still in place sacrificial offerings were still being made the yearly um, festivals were still being practiced and consequently the hebrew people uh, judaism was a way of life it was the way they ate the way they dressed um, the way they spoke everything god did with them was to Was unique and it was a thing designed to separate them from the rest of the world as God's people, an outward sign of their of their of God choosing them and them choosing God. Um, But consequently, those influences were um, temptations. They were. They were difficulties they were stumbling blocks for these jewish believers right and there was false teaching out there that said that this was the wrong way following christ was the wrong way that you needed to come back to judaism after all it had been around for thousands of years god himself had set it up and you know all these things and so this letter was to combat some of that false teaching was to stand in the place of some of those temptations it was to reiterate truth and to encourage these Jewish believers in faith in their faith in Christ even as they were being persecuted some of them unto death following after Christ and so in light of this we've been given reasons as we're now focusing on Jesus's priestly ministry so Jesus is superior we've looked at many things Jesus is superior to Moses and to the law and to Abraham and to angels and to the prophets and there's been a case made for all of these as we've transitioned through the book up to now and so now we're dealing with the priesthood. There was a Levitical priesthood, and the high priest, and and the argument is is that Jesus is even better, a better high priest. He's the great high priest. He's superior to the priest of the Levitical priesthood. And back in chapter eight, we considered that Jesus, as our great high priest, is better because here's one of the arguments that is because he's a, a he ministers from a with a better covenant. So we as children of God, we as people. We enter into relationship with with god through covenant god established a covenant with the hebrew people there on mount sinai after he had been delivered from egyptian bondage and actually there was an abrahamic covenant when it all started and i don't want to go back that far in detail all of it but but god says we're going to have covenant relationship together and if you weren't here last week you can go back and listen to what covenant really means and what that looks like but God established covenant. He enters into relationship with us through covenant. And he continues to do through do so through, through Jesus. But the old covenant is lacking. And where it was lacking, we know that it's been complete or fulfilled in Jesus Christ with a new covenant. A covenant established in the blood of Christ. A, a covenant that has been established, ultimately what the author of Hebrews says is in chapter 8, it's established in better promises. And I don't know about you, but just in general, uh, better promises are better right you know uh, and and someone makes a promise to you you know hey uh, uh, if you do this I'll give you a hundred bucks and if someone says oh if you do that I'll give you a thousand right I mean the logic just prevails everywhere through life and the better promises means we're recipients of them and so he detailed that for us but now as we continue into chapter 9 this discussion about the superiority of Jesus' ministry continues, and Jesus is once again shown to be better. There's going to be another reason given to us for why he's better. There's a better covenant, but also it's because he he makes the point here, the author of the book of Hebrews, that this new covenant with its better promises, okay, this new covenant with its better promises is ministered from a better sanctuary. A better sanctuary. So you had the earthly tabernacle and now we know that there's a heavenly tabernacle where Jesus Christ is at and that's where he ministers this new covenant with a better promise and there's a significance in that especially for the Hebrew people and there was this this temptation to go back to the sacrificial system the keeping of the laws of Levitical priesthood and the author's going don't do that there's a better sanctuary a better place by which we can commune with God. And so, as we, as we begin to go through this next chapter and consider what we're being told, it's best to divide the chapter into two sections. So if you're taking notes, we'll see this. Because in doing so, the two sections, there's a compare and contrast that's taking place. So there's this contrast is the illustrative part of it that shows us the better. And um, uh, a contrast made between the two tabernacles, meaning the earthly sanctuary, Uh, of the first covenant and that's what's spoken of here in verses 1 through 10 and then of course the heavenly sanctuary which will be spoken of in greater detail for us in verses 11 through 28 so let's pray and we'll get into it father thank you for this time of worship thank you for the time of fellowship as we ate burritos and supported the youth and thank you for communion and your word and i pray father I just wanna confess that I'm weak and I'm foolish and there's nothing that I can do up here that is any good apart from you. Lord, I'm in need of you. And so Father, I ask that you would show yourself strong in my weakness, in my frailty. Lord, that people would hear from you. That there would be understanding, Lord, not just in our head, but in our heart where we're moved into deeper relationship with you. That we would fully understand your priestly ministry and where you're at and why it's better. And what it, what it means to have these things available to us in our lives, the blessings that they are. That means we walk in relationship with you. And we may, may make these same things known to others who are, who are lost, Lord, who are, are, are hopeless, who are hurting, who only have circumstantial happiness and the unsurety of what happens after this life is over god bless us in jesus name i pray amen all right verse one it says then indeed even the first covenant right that's what we've been talking about the mosaic covenant even that covenant had ordinance of divine service in the earthly sanctuary okay so we're talking about a new covenant we're talking about a new sanctuary the the author in transition says hey listen this is not it's not such a far-fetched idea to think that this new covenant has orders of divine service things that jesus our priest does so that we may enter into fellowship with him like one of the things that he was talking about at the end of the thing is that jesus is not any different than the high priest that were because even he comes with a sacrifice for us right an order of divine service and an earthly sanctuary but we know that it's not then inconceivable to think that in the new covenant there's still a sanctuary it's just not what it was so indeed right even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service and the earthly sanctuary and then he's going to go on to talk about it he says for the tabernacle was for for a tabernacle was prepared he's going to he's going to categorically detail this for us he says the first part in which was the lampstand table and the showbread which is called the sanctuary so he's telling us the first part of the sanctuary of the tabernacle there was two parts in the first part um there were these certain things and behind the second veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which there were the golden pot that had the manna aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant and above it were cherubim of glory on the mercy seat of these things he says we cannot or we are not going to speak in detail now and so i'm going to quickly illustrate why this is kind of a confusing verse but if you think about it who's it being written to the hebrew people the hebrew people were well aware of the tabernacle they were well aware of the temple they were well aware of the divine ordinances they were well aware of what took place inside these thing, this this building or this tent depending on what time frame it was and also of the implements that were in there but you and i being gentiles so far removed from it we're not as intimately aware of those things so we're going to spend a little time looking at them here in just a minute but he said that's he's basically saying remember this consider this but we're not going to talk about them in detail so he says in verse 6 now when these things had been thus prepared the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the service he's recalling these things they were familiar with to mind he says but into the second part the high priest went alone once a year not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance and he goes on to say in verse 8 here very key thing he says the holy spirit holy spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest Well. The first tabernacle was standing, and, and we're gonna talk about the exclusivity of the, the most holy place. And and no matter what was done here on this earth in that old covenant at that at that time, the Holy Spirit, because it was exclusive, only the high priest, only one day of a year, it was an indication, it was a testimony to all the other Hebrew people that you don't get to come into the presence of God. There's not a way for you yet. But he says it was symbolic. It was clear that there was not a way made yet, but all these things were symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered. So they were symbolic for a time now, for these things now, because the reality of these things have been made known to us, is what he's saying. It was symbolic for the present time in which the gifts and the sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation literally for a new time that has been appointed by God such a time as this is what he's saying a time that you and I are now a part of and so in verses 1 through 10 we look at these first five verses and before we get into the temple the construction of the temple and the things that were in it that he details here i want to point out that in these first five verses there's really five reasons given to us right off the bat that will be later contrasted in this this um chapter to show the betters but there's five reasons given for why that earthly sanctuary was inferior and um, when we get to the second part, we'll look at these things in greater detail, these reasons. But for now, the first reason for why the earthly tabernacle was inferior is seen in verse 1. As we're told, it's simply here on this earth. And if you've ever bought any kind of real estate, commercial or residential, you know that real estate agents will tell you that it's all about what? Location, 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 Right? and and that's true in regards to the heavenly tabernacle location matters so the second reason is the summation of what we read here in verses two through five okay there's a there's a an account a summation a brief account of the earthly sanctuary and that things were in it and then if you look up over to verse 23 where we get to the contrasting part of this chapter we're reminded that all these things that are listed here in verses two through five were just copies of the real things and we talked about that in some, some regard last week when we were talking about um, it's better to have the original, right? We want original pieces of art. We want original documents. We want, we want real people in front of us, just not pictures of them, unless you, you know, only just want a picture, depending on who it is. But, you know, the idea is, is I'd rather have my walk, walk hand in hand with my wife than just carry her picture in my wallet, right? I, I, it's not the same um i'm trying i want to expound on all these things and we'll get to them so just bear with me if you think i'm just um skimming over them nonchalantly i'm skimming over them because i know we're going to get into them to detail later on but the third reason for why the sanctuary of the old covenant was inferior is revealed in verses six and seven and it's this it's huge it's key it's everything ultimately it's because it was inaccessible to the people and and not just the location of the building the inner part of the sanctuary but in the inner part of the sanctuary the most holy of holies this is where god manifested his his presence and what god was saying is is even through the old covenant there's there you can't have this accessible relationship with me there's something hindering we are still separated to some degree the fourth reason is that it was temporary um and this is stated in verse 8 when we're told that the way into the holiest of all had not made evident while the first tabernacle was still standing so it was temporary in the sense that we know that we knew from the beginning or had always been established that that it was that there was something better to come right there was the real thing to come this was designed by god from the very beginning to vanish away and we closed with chapter 8 where it says um uh, you know that that he says this he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete with a new covenant he has made the old obsolete is what it is saying and he said hey man what is growing what is what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish is gonna vanish away and we know that it did the temple does not stand today the new covenant is not in place today it's disappeared so it's temporary and lastly, the fifth reason, seen in verses nine through ten, for um, why the earthly tabernacle was inferior is that the divine service which took place in the earthly tabernacle—think about it—the sacrifices, the offering of the incense, the the yearly the yearly feasts, and in every aspect of the priestly ministry—that you can you can read the detailed accounts of it in the book of leviticus and in the book of exodus where god counted these things he says all of these divine services right he's basically saying here they couldn't change a person's heart at best you could be religious on the outside and do good works, so to speak which nobody does perfectly but it never made you holy on the inside it never purified you on the inside it never established you as righteous before god so five things are very important and like i said we'll get to them when we get here next week but for now we need to understand that these things in the tabernacle that we're reading about they were symbolic right they were copies of heavenly things that were to come and so we're going to spend some time this morning looking at that because when we do so we'll see some pretty cool things in regards to our own relationship with god so to begin with i want to point out that both the earthly tabernacle and the, hang- and, the- and the heavenly tabernacle the one that was and the one that is they're also called sanctuaries we have an idea of what a sanctuary might be. But the Greek word for sanctuary is the word hagion. And it means a holy place. More, more specifically, it means a consecrated place. Something that's been set apart, right? And specifically in this instance, it's been set apart by God. Both the earthly tabernacle, it's set apart by God, and designed by God, and of course the heavenly as well. But it's a consecrated place, and it's, the purpose of it is, is to be a refuge from harm. A sanctuary, by definition, is a refuge from harm. It's a safe place. And the first tabernacle constructed by Moses, Moses was a tent. And I don't know about you, but when in my mind I am picture this, even though I know how big it was, I think of this majestic, huge thing, and it wasn't at all. But I think in my mind, I think about it that way, because this is where God revealed himself to his people. But yet the dwelling place, the earthly dwelling place of God was very humble and I love that because think about it what does the Bible say now about God's earthly dwelling place where is it it's in us very humble fleshly things right but when you think about the tabernacle listen it was 45 feet long 15 feet wide and 15 foot high I think you could fit three maybe four in this one room that's mind-blowing and in verses two and three, we're reminded that this earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle, had two parts, an outer part and an inner part, and they were separated from one another by a veil, a very thick veil, the veil of separation. In the outer part of the larger room, it measured fifteen feet by thirty feet, fifteen feet across, thirty feet deep, and that left fifteen feet in the back, and that was where the holy of holies was at, fifteen by fifteen. And according to verse two, in the first part of the inner tabernacle of the tabernacle, here stood the lampstand and a table and 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 table with bread on it it's called the showbread and because verse 4 speaks about the golden censer that was also in the holy place the most holy place it wasn't it didn't it didn't it wasn't kept there it just was brought in there and and i mentioned that because we also know that within this first room there was a a piece of furniture called the altar of incense and um in the inner part of sanctuary there was the ark of the covenant and inside the Ark of the Covenant, it was a box, we'll talk about that. The, the golden pot of manna was there, Aaron's rod that budded, and the, and the tablet of the covenants, the, the actual stone tablets with God with his own finger had written the law on and gave them to Moses. They were in there. And lastly, verse 5 tells us about the mercy seat. That might, in It was literally the lid that was on top of this box, this Ark of the Covenant, and it was very ornate. We'll talk about it a little bit later on. Now, The instruction for the construction of the lampstand. Let's look at this first. It's in Exodus chapter 25 verses 31 through 40 is where we read about it. And in this passage we're told that it was made of pure gold, this lampstand. It's what we would see as a menorah today. It had a total of six branches, three on each side of a center beam that rose up through the middle. And on each and on the top of each one of these branches was a bowl that contained oil and a wick, and the wick was lit to burn the oil in the bowl, and this is what illuminated the first part of the sanctuary, and it provided the necessary for the light, uh, to necessary light for the divine services that took place in this first part, because there was no windows to let the light in as a matter of fact there wasn't even a door there was a veil on the outside and once that veil was shut no sunshine came in if you think about that in regards to the inner part of the sanctuary the most holy of holies there was no light at all in there there was no menorah there was no lampstand but yet when the priest would enter in in that one day we're told that it was the glory the glory of the lord the presence of the lord that would illuminate that place and so um when we consider the lampstand right and the light that it gave as a copy right of the good things that were to come as a a symbolic thing right we see a connection to jesus why because in john chapter 8 verse 12 it tells us that jesus is the light of the world and furthermore in regards to our own lives we're told in philippians chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 we have the light of jesus in us and we are to shine as lights in the world. Now, think about it. And this if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, especially if you grew up in Sunday school, you're like, this is a very familiar thing, right? This little light of mine, right? I'm gonna let it shine. We, we all know that. Even if you weren't in Sunday school, you probably had heard that. And, and yet, guys, think about this. This is something that had been set forth by God from the very beginning. And God says, this was a copy, and now it's a reality. The reality of it is, is Jesus... The light of Jesus, the relationship that we have with Him, Him in us now shining out into this world. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus said it this way You are the light of the world. Let me stop there. (laughs) Um, We have such a tendency, go back to this whole beginning discussion where we're talking about God's grace and God's redemptive power still for this present time that we live in. God's grace is enough. We have to believe that. We have to receive that. We have to live in that way. And, and if we believe that, you know, want to know what will stop happening? We'll stop cursing the darkness. We look at, I don't know about you, again, our justice system. I'm like, are you kidding me? I think of our, 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 our political leaders. I think about more so than just the men themselves, the women themselves. I think about how we as a nation have departed so far from our foundation that was established in, in God. I think about our school systems. And I think about all these things, and I go, it's darkness. It's sin. It's filth. It's perversion. And I have a tendency to stand back and curse the darkness and to shake my fist at it. And yet the Bible makes it very clear that we as ministers of Jesus Christ who have the light of God inside of us, that we're not called to curse the darkness, but we're called to shine light into the darkness. And when we lose sight of God's grace and we doubt the power of God's grace, then we don't shine as lights. We just stand off and curse. And that doesn't bring people to God. That doesn't draw people to Christ. He says, you are the light of the world. He says, think about it. A city that is set on a hill, it can't be hidden. Why? Because it's lit up and you see it. He says, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. He's basically saying, people who do that are foolish. That's a foolish thing to do. They put it on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. He says, there. He says, he says, he says let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven so for now until we get to heaven we who are the lord's priests literally here on this earth are to let jesus who is the light shine through our lives if we don't have the right heart attitude with that we're not going to shine the right things and see when we do so two things will happen when you turn the light on in the room what happens to the darkness it goes away We want this world to be different guys we want the darkness to be driven out let the light of Jesus shine through your life Jesus says you're the answer you're the hope in this situation me in you me and you not only will the darkness be driven out but think about it this world's lost we talk about it right we use that lost sheep these people are lost well how will they know which way to go if they're just wandering around in the darkness the thing about the light when the lights turned on i see the right way to go i see the right way to go and if we're shining the light if our lives are being light shine to this world people will know what is the right way to go but for now this is what it is and in the future think about it i love this as we think about the the final ramifications of this in regards to the symbolic and and the copy of what it was and what it's going to be. When we get to that sanctuary, ultimately, that's not made with hands. Things are going to be different. Listen to Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 through 23. The Apostle John writes. He says, "He says, I saw no temple in it." He's speaking about this new, new heaven and new earth. He says, "I saw no temple in it." He says, "For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple." Who's the ultimate safe place? Who's the ultimate consecrated place for us? God and the Lamb. He said the city itself had no need of sun or moon or to shine for it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The glory of God. Now, in the holy place directly across from the lampstand, when you read back in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, there was this table with the showbread in it. In Leviticus chapter 24, it tells us about the showbread, it tells us about what the priests were supposed to do with them. You can go and read it, it's the first part of Leviticus chapter 24. But I'll tell you, there were 12 loaves. Each one of the loaves were designed to be a representation of a tribe of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. They were right outside of the most holy place, there just on the other side of the veil. The priests were allowed to eat this bread after it had been there for 1 week. They were replaced every day on the or replaced every sabbath. But the interesting thing about it is is the priests couldn't remove the bread from the tabernacle if they were going to eat it. If it came out it had to be there was a process but they could eat it but it had to be eaten inside the tabernacle they had to bring it into themselves in this sanctuary and these loaves were also called the bread of presence that's that's a key thing as a symbolic symbolic thing as a um a copy of what was and or what's going to be. The table itself was called the table of presence, and this was because they were just outside of the veil of separation, there before the presence of God. And the loaf represented, I said, one of the tribes of Israel, each one. And the these 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 loaves being symbolic at the time and also symbolic for us in the future, they were intended to remind the nation of Israel of two things. The first was the fact that they the nation was always in God's presence they were always in God's presence the showbread of presence God saw them God was watching over them furthermore as a reminder that that being in the sanctuary this place of refuge from harm in the presence of God that is what sustained them as we look at the symbolism of the showbread in relationship to our own lives we too should be reminded that like the Hebrew people we as a result of our faith in Jesus who by the way according to John chapter 6 is the bread of life we're also in this continual state of being before the presence of God that's a that's a I don't think we live with that there's a book written by a man named brother Lawrence it's a, it's a, I think that's the name of the guy who wrote it he was a monk and he 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 wrote this little pamphlet this little book called practicing the presence of God I've read it a few times it's it's an incredibly profound thing he writes about living with the knowledge and understanding that you're in the presence of God and yet we are it's the only place where there's true safety it's our only place of refuge and this is a reminder to us that our lives must be lived with this understanding in the second part of the tabernacle behind the veil of separation this is where we begin to talk about the very exclusive place right not only was it exclusive but it was restrictive it was a very restricted place it was the place where god would manifest his presence in fact the holy place this holy place was symbolic Of God's throne room the place where Jesus Christ now intercedes for us as a great high priest it was so exclusive that the earthly high priest was only allowed to enter it on one day of the year it was only him and only one day of the year and according to what we read in verse 7 that that was the the appointed day was the day of atonement and it was for two specific reasons he couldn't go in there and do whatever he wanted he couldn't go in there and just hang out whenever he wanted as a matter of fact, it, when he did go in when he was supposed to, it was it was in and out, in and out, in and out. He didn't linger there. And according to what we read in Leviticus chapter 16 verses 11 through 13, on this one specific day, specific day, the priest was to bring the blood of the sin offering as a payment for his sins and the blood of another sin offering for the the payment of the the sins of the nation of Israel and it was to sprinkle, sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and here's the thing if the blood offering was accepted the high priest would exit and return with the golden censer right and it had, that golden censer was filled with the coals from the altar of incense that was just on the other side of the veil and that incense then was brought in and it was burned in order so that it would completely cover the mercy seat the 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 lid part on top of the ark of the covenant and even though this holy place was exclusive think about this let me think so who who here has would you say that i, I there's been those times where i just have entered into the presence of god it's a pretty cool thing maybe it's been in a time when you've been Uh, alone and you've just been praying or reading god's word maybe it's been in church when you've there's been a a particular worship song and you've closed your eyes and you're like if i open it up i might see god you know Uh, uh, the sense of god's presence is very near maybe it's been in a time of suffering a time of tragedy a time of difficulty because god says he's near those who are of a troubled heart of a broken heart you know that's us being transported to this heavenly place you know in our mind and in our heart where we're before the presence of god and that's made available to us. I don't think we take advantage of that as often as we can, where it says to us to come boldly to that throne room of grace to receive the help that we need in our time of need. And the thing about it is, is, is you've experienced that, it's an enjoyable situation. It's an enjoyable time. But when we think about this earthly sanctuary and the duties of the priest, I'm here to tell you that that it was anything but that for them. This day of atonement and entering into the tabernacle to go into the holy of most holies this whole thing was a very laborious and terrifying experience for the high priest it was laborious he was required to personally sacrifice and butcher five animals on that day he would rise early to do so some of you i know are hunters you've you've harvested your own animal you've even processed some of that you know, I've always had somebody help me do that, except for one time I got a phone call from a state patrol buddy that said there's an elk that's been hit up here on Highway 9. It's alive. I'm about ready to just put it down. Do you want I said, yeah, I'll take it. I couldn't find anybody to go help me get it. I'm like, I can do this. <laughs> about two hours into it, I was frozen and probably maybe crying on the side of the road. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And the high priest, had to do, he had to do a bull. Two rams and two goats on one day. And, 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 and it wasn't just about killing it and cutting it up. It was about taking the, the inner parts of the animal and doing specific things with it and washing out the entrails to five different animals. And it was terrifying. This whole ter- thing was a terrifying experience because the high priest understood that entering to the Holy of Holies was ultimately a survival mission. His survival mission. His whole main goal was not just to offer the sacrifices in accordance with the law. His main goal was to make it out of the Holy of Holies alive. You see, the high priest had to perform all of the Levitical preparations detailed in the Mosaic law perfectly. Every last bit of the sacrifice to every one of those sacrificial Animals had to be done right. All of the ceremonial washings that took place before and during and after, it all had to be done perfectly. And here's the thing. If he got one thing wrong, he was deemed unworthy. And when he went into the Holy of Holies, he found out that he did it wrong in a way that cost him his life. As he would be struck down by God when he entered in. This is how seriously God takes entering into His presence. In fact, because the Holy of Holies was so exclusive and highly restricted, there was even a system in place to know if the high priest had been struck down and a means to be able to retrieve his body. Think about it if he's in there and he died, now what do you do? How do you know that he's dead? well in the hymn of the garment of the high priest's robe there were these little bells that were sewn into it and so every time he would walk or take a step there was this jingling of the bell And so on the other side of the veil the other levitical priest as he was entering in they would be like shh listening and if the bell stopped jingling right it would be presumed that he had been struck down well the means to retrieve the body was done by tying a rope onto the ankle of the high priest before he went in, so that if things didn't go the way that it was expected, he could be dragged out or pulled out by the rope. A very exclusive and restricted place. Another item in the tabernacle that was used in the Holy of Holies, as well as in the main part of the tabernacle, right, was the, the golden of altar. It was con- the, the golden censer, and it was connected to the golden altar. There was a shared relationship there, and it's mentioned here in verse 4. The altar stood in the large part of the tabernacle. And the cool thing about it is, is the high priest, every morning and every evening of every day of the year, the high priest's divine service duties, if you will, is he would go in there and burn incense on the coals of that altar. On the Day of Atonement, coals were taken from that altar. They were put in the golden incense, brought into the Holy of Holies. And it was burned until the cloud of the incense covered the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Listen, when we consider the symbolism of this, we understand from other passages of Scripture that the smoke of the incense is always a picture of the prayers of the the people of God being lifted up before God. That's the imagery. The incense rises, and it's like our prayers rising up before God. And the fact that the high priest offered up incense on the altar every morning and every evening, it's first a reminder for us that God calls us to be devoted to Him. Relationally as we daily offer up our prayers and we enter into this communicative relationship with God as we begin our day as we end our day as we carry through our day furthermore when we consider the rising up of the smoke from this golden censer to cover up the mercy seat where the where the where the um where God met with the priest, think about that. The prayers are on the mercy seat as a form of the smoke of the incense. You know, God's glory is being manifested in that room. It's lit up literally with the presence of God. And, and this is a picture of our prayers. And what God meets with the priest there, he's saying, I hear your prayers. I'm listening to your prayers. I'm receiving your prayers. And it's a call for us to be a people who pray. And when we consider the incense that it was burned, we know from Exodus chapter 30 that God had given a specific recipe for it. Also, um, when we understand that this altar had a connection to it from Leviticus chapter 16 verse 12, um, God said that the the fire um, from the altar was to be with holy fire and that was a fire that could only be taken from the brazen altar. So it was the specific transfer of this one flame from one place to the next. It was sanctified, it was holy, and this golden altar of incense, it was never to be used for any other kind of offering. Uh, It could not be defiled in any other way. And in Exodus chapter 30 verse 10, on that day of atonement once a year, the the, the, the blood that was taken from the sacrificial animal of the sin offering that was eventually taken into the Holy of the Most Holies, that same blood prior to entering in behind the veil was put on the four corners of the altar of incense. And the altar of incense, because of that, at that time, in that moment, was called Most Holy to the Lord. Now think about all the connected symbolism here. Because in light of this, we should see that God desires us To be a praying people right a devoted people but he also calls us to be a holy people if god is cleansing and making this altar holy by the blood of the sacrificed animal we see the connection in other words here's the deal hear this We've talked about this this over and over again in regards to having a relationship with God versus versus maintaining the rules and the regulations of what you should do and what you shouldn't do and how you should do it and how you shouldn't do it and all these kinds of things that are very typical to the old covenant and the old divine services. But the 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 law and the rituals that were included in it, you know, of the burning of the incense and of the altar of incense, none of these things were ever designed to make people right with God. They didn't have the ability to do so. They were symbolic. They pointed forward to the one who could, the one who would. And so we must rightly conclude for us that no ritual we decide to follow or deem to be worthy will ever make us right with God. It'll, it'll, there'll never be enough to make us right with God. Nothing that we can do. Remember, God wanted His people's hearts. He wanted His people's minds, His people's lives to be right with Him. He wanted the inward part of the man Not just the outer part. And in Isaiah's time, the prophet Isaiah, when he served God, it was a time in the history of the nation of Israel where they were um, on both sides of the fence, so to speak. They were worshiping God pagan gods these false idols of the gentile people around them God speaks to them about being spiritual adulterers but yet what we know is that the Hebrew people were mixing Judaism with paganism and they were completely keeping all these these divine services and worshipping at the temple and 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 God said to them this is disgusting stop listen in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 13 through 15 He said stop bringing Meaningless offerings. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to Me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear all your evil assemblies. God says, you're doing this and it's, it's in accordance to what I have said to do. You're, you're doing it in, in the way that I've said to do it. He says, but it's an evil assembly to Me. Stop! He says, he said, I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moons, your festivals, and your appointed feasts. He said, These times when you come to worship me, he says, my soul hates. He says, they have become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And because of this, we can see it's more important to have a proper heart before God than it is to burn proper incense, than it is to burn it at the proper time, than it is to burn it with the proper fire, than it is to burn it with the proper implements. A right heart before God. And so, listen, guys, when we consider the burning of the incense as a picture of prayer, we should also consider other scriptures where it's pictured. David himself wrote, and he said, may my prayer be set before you like incense. The thing about incense is it's a sweet-smelling aroma. And God says, your prayers can be stinky to me because your heart's not right with me. But David said, may it be like the incense, a sweet-smelling aroma you see, in light of these, these passages of David and other likes of him, we see that the altar of incense symbolic of the prayers of people. Here's that. In that, our prayers ascend to God like the smoke. And the fact that the incense is always burned in the morning and the evening as a perpetual incense before the Lord means that we too, as we're told in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, that we should be praying continually. Right? If we have this mindset of the being in in the presence of god before the presence of god in the presence of god then we should be praying continually and and like the incense think about it as we're connecting the dots as the incense was burned hear this with a fire from the brazen altar of the burnt offering so must our prayers also be brought to god with holy fire there was a holy fire right there was blood there was holy fire there was a specific kind of incense And for us who believe in Jesus, this means when you think about fire in relationship to the to the New Testament, what do you think about? I think about the Holy Spirit. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, to pray in the Holy Spirit. Now I don't know about you, but that seems like a very lofty and religious thing. Praying in the Holy Spirit. But fortunately for us, the Word of God gives us very concrete ways to do this. What does this mean? What does this look like? How do we pray in the Holy Spirit? And praying in the Holy Spirit means this. First of all, are you actively aware that you're in the presence of God? When you're praying, are we aware that God is here? That He's meeting with us? That He's revealing Himself to us? That He's come to hear what we have said to Him? God our Father. God the Creator of all things. Speaking to Him. Praying in the Holy Spirit also means that we allow for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and move our hearts as we pray in accordance to God's will. Here's the thing, guys. Which one of us knows God's will apart from God revealing His will to us? And the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of us, these earthly temples, if you will, that we are, as the Bible says, we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts and according to pray for God's will. You know, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples and they said hey teach us how to pray that's what he said right our father who art in heaven how be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done and lots of times i don't know about you it's like i pray that and i'm like my prayer is god i'm not certain about what your will is in this situation And I pray for His will to be done. I pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate my heart and mind so I can come to Him and pray for God's will to be done. Furthermore, praying in the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit empowers our prayer. Right? It's lifted up. It's carried to our Heavenly Father. Why? Because we pray in the name of who? Jesus. In His name. Who is our great High Priest? Jesus We pray in the name of Jesus. And not only is our high priest who makes intercession for us, but he is our sin sacrifice who has made the atonement for our sins. He's the means and the way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And praying in the Holy Spirit is acknowledging that. And the fact that the altar of incense was holy to God, the fact that it was atoned with the blood sacrifice right on the Day of Atonement, I think what we see is how the blood of Jesus applied to our hearts is what makes our prayers acceptable to God. Why? Because only holy people can come into the presence of God. And our holiness is solely conditionable or conditional to our relationship with Jesus. Jesus says, "It's my holiness in exchange for your unholiness." And when we pray in Jesus' name, we stand before God because of Christ's righteousness and not because of our own. And we consider that sin must be dealt with. Before our prayers become pleasing to God or acceptable to God, we have to remember our part. So Jesus establishes the holiness, but our part is listed in James chapter 5 verse 16. Here's our part: confess 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 your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed why because the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much you want your prayers to avail much stand in righteousness confess your sin and i point this out because a true fervency in prayer isn't religious emotion that we work up that we work ourselves up into rather it's a blessing that god will send down as we yield ourselves to him John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, said it like this. He said, In prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. I think that kind of unpacks everything that we've just been talking about. In prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without heart. So as we consider that God calls us to be a praying people, we should also realize that prayer isn't simply this... um, collection of words that we somehow magically mix together that we put our hope in that they'll ultimately be heard and answered by god rather the bible teaches us in first timothy chapter 2 and philippians chapter 4 that prayer is this prayer is adoration prayer is confession prayer is intercession prayer is petition prayer submission and prayer is even thanksgiving I'm going to wrap it up with this. The Holy of Holies. There was an Ark of the Covenant there. It was a wooden chest. It was covered in gold. It measured three feet, nine inches long by two feet, three inches wide, and two feet by three inches high. On the top of the Ark, there was this lid that was made of gold. There was these two cherubim, these two magnificent angelic creatures on top of the lid, and their wings were outstretched over the center of the mercy seat. And according to Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, this is the place where God would manifest His His presence on the day of atonement before the high priest. The blood of the sacrificed animals would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the Ark of the Covenant, hear this, this is where it gets really cool for us as we close. The Ark of the Covenant was also called the Ark of the Testimony. Have you thought about that? the Ark of Witness, the Ark of Testimony. And this is because of what was in it. These three items that are mentioned as far as what was in it. And at the end of verse 4, we're told that there was the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the stone tablet that had been thrown down, the ones that were broken by Moses. And these items were a witness or a testimony before God that the Hebrew people, or a, a testimony or a witness before God against the Hebrew people as it was a reminder of the nation's failures and weaknesses. Think about it. The manna was a remainder of God's provision and their ungratefulness. Can anyone relate to that? Have you ever had God provide and be ungrateful? The Aaron's rod which budded and brought forth ripe almonds, if you read the story overnight, was a reminder of their rebellion. The rebellion of Korah. Where they rebelled against God's authority in their life. Can anyone relate? The stone tablets the, of the covenant reminded Israel of their failure to be able to keep the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. But hear this, Corey, if you want to come up as we close. At the same time, these reminders were, were symbolic. These reminders were also a picture of how God, through the covenant, is able to contain all the failures and all of the weaknesses of His people. Where did they go? Inside the box. What was on top of the box? The mercy seat or was the blood of the sacrifice applied on the mercy seat and the fact that they were covered with the blood as it was sprinkled on there yearly is a reminder that through God's mercy and through God's grace he accepts the blood of another for the payment of our own blood not our blood but the blood of another and it was a testimony it was a testimony in two ways it was a testimony, also, of the people or to the people of God's desire and plan to provide, ultimately, a once and all, a once and for all sacrifice that would do such so much more than the blood of bulls and goats that could only offer up a temporary covering for sin. And for us today, these same reminders are a testimony to us, in which one, which was once symbolic has now become um, a reality. In our lives, in that in the presence of God is where we know that all of our failures and all of our weaknesses are sustained and contained by Him. A better sanctuary. And so as we wrap things up, I think it's easy to see the many spiritual truths that are wrapped up in these pieces of furniture, right? These copies of what were to come or what had already been in place, the real things, and all of them are valuable to us of value to us but listen the most important truth is that all of this was symbolism and not the spiritual reality you and i partake of a spiritual reality through our faith in jesus christ and it's this truth that made the tabernacle of the old covenant inferior father may we see that and realize the superiority of this relationship that we have in you this new covenant that we have through you and Lord the access to the heavenly sanctuary Lord that you intercede for us on behalf of us Lord that is rooted in the sacrifice that you made that you live forevermore and you call us Lord to come boldly to your throne room of grace Lord as we are men and women who are in need of your grace again may we be ministers of your grace to those who we see who are also in need may we not doubt the power of your love the power of your grace Lord, to reach into the depths of any pit of any place of sin, no matter who that person is, to pull out and to save. And Lord, may we make, may we be men and women who welcome those people into this, this church building and into our lives, Lord, so they may have fellowship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand?